Welcome to Goshen Books. Hi, I'm Leanne Grunberg-Wakabayashi here in Jerusalem. Everett Kennedy Brown is a Kyoto-based American artist, writer, and experimental photographer whose books about the movers and shakers in Japanese society have led to appearances on NHK television and in TED Talks. His photographic work is in the permanent collections of major international museums. And in 2013, he was honored with the Japanese Cultural Affairs Award for his creative contributions to the nation. The stirrings of ancient Japanese culture have been with Everett since his discovery of a sacred waterfall in Northern Japan in the mid 1980s, where he immersed himself in its waters and heard a voice telling him to document the impossible a distant past that no longer existed to the naked eye. Everett has spent more than three decades searching in the remote mountains of Japan and combing the tsunami-scarred beaches to find this elusive dream time, both in the landscape itself and in the faces of some of Japan's oldest, noblest, and almost forgotten families. Everett will read passages from his memoir in progress that offer us a glimpse beyond his stirring wet plate images in which he portrays his subjects as if they walked out of a pre-modern past, and so did he. Without further ado, I introduce you to the future author of Kyoto Dreamtime, Everett Kennedy Brown. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, and, uh, and let's, let's begin. It's really a pleasure to be here uh, this evening. For me, this is a, a very special opportunity to uh, read from my uh, upcoming book, uh, Kilter Dream Time. I love anthropology, I love archeology, span and I'm fascinated with this idea that there were ocean-going Aborigines in Southeast Asia 40,000 years ago some of them went down to Australia. Others went out to the, the distant islands off of Papua New Guinea. And then others went north through the Philippines, Taiwan to Japan, and then further on over to North and South America. Um, so, you know, of, of all of the, the oldest bones that have been found in North and South America, most of them actually come from these uh, Southeast Asian ocean-going Aborigines. And so, you know, I, I have this idea that, you know, we have the, the dream time in Australia and that, you know, those descendants, they also went north and they carried the dream time with them. And, and what I found, you know, I, uh, through different experiences that I've had in Japan is, um, um, that there is elements of a dream time here uh, that is connected with, uh, you know, Shinto, with, uh, you know, Buddhist uh, and, and other traditions. And there are different layers of this dream time. And, uh, and through, you know, different experiences that I've had over the 30 years of being in Japan, um, this is what I've wanted to write about, you know, in, in this book and to share that, that unseen dimension of Japan that is really very little talked about. I've got a question, Everett, about that. Um, mm. are, are you finding that Japanese among themselves are not aware of these Aboriginal connections or have you in your journey, part of the journey of, of, of exploring um, these stories is to find these storytellers in Japan who know the ancient secrets? Yeah, well, I, I've, I've met a lot of people that have fragments of the dream time. You know, they, they, they access it, you know, based on their, their, their different cultural filters, their different beliefs. And in the different chapters in the book, I'm, you know, providing different facets, you know, of the dream time. And, uh, you know, some of these come from my Yamabushi experiences, you know, in endurance experiences in nature, you know, meditating under circuit waterfalls, you know, a whole, you know, variety of different, different experiences. I, I don't want to say too much about it. It might be good to get back into the reading. Yes, let's, I would suggest go right ahead. Okay. All right. Okay. 
Since coming to Kyoto, Junko had been delving deep into Heian era culture. She was even becoming devoted to the classical ways of nature worship. Every few days, she would go into our garden or the hills behind our home to collect flowers that she would arrange in a vase for our living room alcove in some ancient style. This was so different from her previous life of luxury in Paris, where she taught flower arranging and lived in a buffered world where all the flowers she needed came with a price tag. Now, at this time in our lives, I was not able to offer her the comforts of wealth, but I would be a man who could climb up a mountain slope in his bare feet and gather wildflowers for her. The branch of blooming wild mountain cherry that I broke off and gave her, she seemed happy with it. She would lay it as an offering on her ancestor's tomb. In our social gatherings, they knew by Junko's accent that she was not a Kyoto native. We were often told that someone who can trace their family roots back to before the war is a true Kyoto native. The war they referred to ended in the 15th century. Though Junko would never mention it to them, her family roots went back to a more ancient Kyoto. The Kakizaki clan left Kyoto before that 100 year war that destroyed so much of the ancient capital. They went north, first to Niigata in the 14th century, where they built a castle and reigned as powerful samurai, and then to Akita, where they became large landowners. Junko's most prominent ancestor was the historical figure, Kakizaki Kagie the great samurai warrior who is now renowned as a popular video game character. I looked back down the trail and saw Junko deep in her thoughts. She, was she has inspired me in many ways and got me thinking about my own family's history with Japan. There was my uncle who often came to Japan before the war when he was the secretary to the governor of Guam. In Yokohama and Kobe, he often bought knickknacks, chopsticks, lacquer balls, stoneware china, and even a samurai sword that he brought home and gave to my grandmother. As a child, I grew up with those things. Then after the war, my father was one of the first Marines to arrive in Tokyo. It was just days after the fighting ended. There is even a photo of him and fellow Marines taken on the deck of the battleship Missouri with General MacArthur in the front just after he had signed the peace treaty. I always wondered about my father. While he was in Japan, he didn't seem very busy. Of all the photos in his big scrapbook from the war, most of the snapshots were of him and his buddies on bicycles, taken at various scenic spots around the country. When I discovered for the first time that scrapbook my father made, I was only three years old. Besides the photos of him on bicycles, there are old postcards of pre-war Tokyo, Kyoto, Kamakura, and Kobe, and many images from the inland sea of old Japanese junks with their swelling sails. As a small child, I loved to play with boats in the bathtub, crashing them into each other and watching them slowly sink in my bathwater. But my plastic boats were nothing like those mysterious junks in my father's scrapbook with their massive billowing sails. It was those boats that brought me to Japan. I remember one postcard in particular. It was an image of junk surrounding the giant Tori Shinto gate at Miyajima in the Inland Sea. That giant red gate was seemingly floating in the water and it captured my budding imagination. I vividly remember how it perplexed me and became the first object of mystery in my young life. I could never forget it and it continues to be an object of mystery for me. Then there was someone else, 
Ephrodite Brown. He arrived in Japan in 1853 with Admiral Perry on the black ships that came to open Japan after 300 years of isolation. Ephrodite was the official photographer for the exhibition and was the first person to take pictures of the Japanese people. I have a problem with Everett. It is not that I don't have sympathy for him. I can imagine all the hardships he faced. Just to get his subjects in front of his camera was a big language and cultural challenge. And then to explain to them the problem of the little metallic photos he took and why the Daguerre type image was a mirror of the person being photographed. He had to convince his subjects, the samurai and important government officials who were brought before him to wear their kimono and swords backwards to get the proper image. This was not an easy job. Some of his subjects were adamant and refused. And when shown their final image, with their swords on their right hips instead of their left, they had to suffer the embarrassment of knowing that their images would be seen, about how their images would be seen for the continuation of history. I first learned about Ephrodit during a tedious lecture on early Japanese photography in Tokyo. While listening to the speaker, I had almost fallen asleep. And then I heard her saying what I thought was my name. I opened my eyes and there he was projected on the lecture screen, Ephrodite Brown, with his Daguerre type camera and his stilted little photos of the Japanese. It was those images that first irked me. I was bothered by how they portrayed the samurai and officials as simply anthropological specimens generic images of oriental natives for study and a curiosity for Western people's eyes. For a time, Ephrodit was like a thorn in my side. Just the thought of him festered deep and complicated feelings. I even tried to find if we were related, but his genealogical path had disappeared. It didn't matter. The only way I could get his ghost out from my past was to fulfill a particularly strong and irrational desire. I had to go back to the 19th century. I had to remake those images of pre-Meiji era Japan in a way that showed the people, not as specimens of curiosity, but to reveal their souls. I was sure there were portals into time that would enable me to do that. It was just a question about how to find them. I started at the National Library, where I found copies of illustrated maps from the Meiji era. These would guide me. I then commissioned a tailor I knew to make me a bunch of stiff winged collar shirts and a 19th century linen traveler's suit. Dressed in my traveler's suit and maps in hand, I set off to walk Japan in search of time portholes into the past. And surprisingly, I found a few. One of the most dramatic was an oddly shaped tree near my farm in Chiba. A lightning bolt had hit the trunk and created a deep gap. I immediately recognized that in that cavity was what appeared to be a portal. And I was right. On closer inspection, the tree was overflowing with cultural memory from the past. I made a glass plate image of that tree and it became one of my most important early images. That innocent time in my life came quickly to an end when the big earthquake and tsunami hit. I traveled up to the tsunami region and made my way to the ravaged backwaters of Iwate to visit the sacred waterfall that had opened my heart and spirit in my youth. What had been a pristine landscape with a beautiful plunge pool had become a calamity of huge boulders and uprooted trees. I was devastated. So much so that I plunged into a psychological crisis. 
the despair I felt seeing all that destruction of the world around me forced a giant chasm in my heart to open. In that place, though, I felt no pain. Instead, there was a deep peace, and I was soon discover another portal into time. Suddenly, every era of Japanese history became accessible, intimate, and nearly tactile. I felt like I could almost physically step into the past, but a voice in my head kept telling me that this chasm was only temporary, a few years at most. I had to work hard and fast to record as many images as I could while that door to the past was open to me. It became necessary for me to quit my media career so that I could devote my time fully to making those images before they disappeared. Okay, let's take a little break there. It's wonderful. I'll open it up to questions. Any questions? Joshua? I just have a comment and that's that uh, Everett, when it gets time to, uh, after the publication of your book, when it gets time to inevitably do the audio version, you really must insist on doing the reading yourself because <laughs> Your, your use of your voice, I'm, I'm, I'm not a writer per se, I'm a, I'm a musician, but the, I, I do a lot of work with musicians and a big part of what I try and get musicians to understand is the connection between music and the voice and the way that the expression of our voice can be used to make music that's expressive. But your voice, I mean, the, the, the way you use it, it's it's really fabulous, um, and uh, the phrasing and the where it's coming up and coming down. It's really uh, interesting for me just to hear that aspect of your reading tonight. The the writing, of course, is wonderful and fascinating. But I, I just wanted to throw that out, Joshua. I, I think you bring up a really you bring up a really interesting point, which is vibration. And mm -hmm. Everett is working really. In the, in the realm of vibration. And so maybe he could talk a little bit about that too, because he's expressing his soul through his writing, his vibration through the writing. That's one of the big aims. Is, is that right, Everett? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and it's something that I'm, I, I've really been struggling with and it, and it requires a lot of rewriting, a lot of rewriting to get the the phrasing right to get to get the vibrations right um, and um, and you know Leanne you know asked me to do this um, uh, engagement and uh, and it got me to start reading my my text out loud and uh, and it, and it's really been an ear opener and so you know it's really helped to um, to work with that yeah. I play the uh, the Triton shell horn, what's called the um, uh, the Hordegai in Japanese, and uh, and it's all about vibration, and uh, and 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 you know the and a, a musician with the sensitivity of the ear, you know, to you know to hear you know your comments is 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 very very meaningful for me. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Do you mean when you say vibration about attunement? I just want to get clear. It's all about a attunement. attunement. Yeah. And is that your work, would you say, as a photographer, working with the collodion camera, is attuning to the landscape too? Yeah, it is. And, uh, and when I photograph landscapes, I, I often um, play the Triton shell horn at the location. Um, and... Uh, and, you know, it's a crazy idea, but, you know, at least, you know, it's a way to activate the subconscious and to be able to connect, you know, with, to attune myself with the environment. So what I'll do is if I go to a place that I, I feel, you know, has some kind of um, old memory, historical memory in the landscape, then I will, I will think about that, that, that memory, that period of time. 
And then I'll play the, the, the Triton shell horn while I'm projecting that memory into the landscape and then hearing the vibration come back. And I'll do that a few times until I feel that, that this memory in the landscape has opened up and that you know, I, I feel some resonance with the past. Thank you. Question, Karen? First of all, thank you. That passage you just read was, for me, absolutely magical. I felt the pull into this um, portal. And I just commend you and how, how you crafted that. And the, the image of the tree that you created and our encounter with the tree through your eyes and your spirit as a portal, that became so real for me so that when you continued on to the portal in your soul through the, the rifting that happened at the waterfall, it, it was trance-like. And I, I really, truly, I just, I didn't want you to stop. I wanted to continue on and enter that world. Just quick questions. Do you know Kamata Toji at Kyoto University? Yeah, sure, sure. Right, okay, good. Yeah. And um, you made a quick reference to sacred waterfall in your youth. Yes. Could, could you just briefly talk about that? Sure, sure. Yes. Um, I. The first chapter of the book is actually uh, talks about a, a shaman woman who I met when I first came to Japan, uh, who I, I fell in love with, and who um, in, first introduced me to to the Dreamtime world in Japan. That you know she would she did a lot of work with with going into trance states, and she did a lot of work with uh, old Japanese families especially old uh, samurai families that were still carrying curses from, you know, five, six, seven hundred years ago. And uh, so she was telling me about the Seoritsu Hime waterfalls. And Seoritsu Hime was a goddess, a Jomon era goddess that uh, inhabits uh, uh, a number of waterfalls, especially in the Tohoku region of Japan. And... Uh, so I took a motorcycle journey to find these waterfalls and I found one in particular that um, I did, you know, waterfall, waterfall meditations under uh, and had an opening experience that was my first entry into the portholes into the dream time and actually traveling back thousands of years into time my life has changed so much since then. Now here I was in Kyoto with Junko and waiting for her to catch up with me on the trail. I was standing at a place on the path where it widened into a well-tended white gravel track. I found a sign nearby and read it. It explained that the white gravel path to the tomb was made by the Imperial Household Agency a few years back. There was a memorial ceremony for Emperor Sewa that is held every 100 years. The path was made for that occasion when a member of the imperial family hikes up to perform a ceremony with the local Shinto priest and a few of the village elders. When Jinko arrived, I let her go ahead of me. She smiled and took off her white sneakers, handed them to me, and began walking barefoot over the white pebbles. I watched each slow and deliberate step and how, as she walked, she radiated a natural dignity. Junko then stopped at the final approach to the tomb. It was a beautiful place where the path became a promenade of inlaid stone that wove through a grove of towering cypress up to the tomb. The scene was pure poetry. Junko was in her element now. She radiated an aura of elegant austerity. I took out my iPhone and using an antique photo app for such timeless moments, I took a few photos. When Junko reached the steps before the tomb, she stopped again. 
In front of her was a stately wooden gate. On both sides was a stone fence that encircled the large tomb. On top of the tomb was a grove of ancient trees whose roots dug deep into the soil around Emperor Sewa's ancient body. In Junko's hand was the flowering mountain cherry branch that I had broken off for her. She placed it carefully in front of the locked wooden gate, then bowed, clapped her hands two times, the Shinto way of prayer, and stood motionless for what seemed like minutes. Below one of the large cypress trees, I found a place to lay out a blanket. From here, I could see the stone wall, the large wooden gate, and glimpses of the earthen tomb within. I took out the tea utensils and started to boil water. While preparing tea, Junko walked over to a sacred sakaki tree near the stone wall. She picked a small branch and then came to join me. What did you feel? I received his blessing, Junko said. I could hear him say, Yoi, oida nasatta. She paused, looking back over her shoulder at the tomb. I want to thank Grandpa with a dance. After a sip of tea, Junko walked back to the tomb entrance and slowly raised the sacred sakaki branch in her right hand towards the sky. She then bowed and began to dance. In the sunlight that radiated down from above the ancient tomb, she glowed in her white kimono, backlit with the radiant light of heaven. I picked up my iPhone and took a few more images. I didn't need to look at the camera screen. I knew they would be beautiful. As Junko steadily danced with the Sakaki branch in her right hand, she appeared to me like a Shinto shrine goddess channeling the energy of the gods. I had never seen her dance this way before. Even my body began to tingle. Then her dance came to an abrupt halt. She dropped down as if her body was depleted of energy and her face was very pale. I have to sit down, she said. All the blood has drained from my head. I went towards her and took Junko's hand and led her to a place in the shade where she could sit by the stone wall. I then fetched her parasol. Can I bring you some tea? I'm okay, she said. I just need to sit for a moment. I left her there in the shade and went back to prepare another pot of tea. I could see that Junko was not in a place of danger. She was alone with her inner self after having slipped into an ancestral dream time. Part of me wanted to be there with her and hear her story, but that time would come later. Now it was better to leave her in her own private world. This was her time now. I was here simply to record her experience for her. I stepped back. Junko was sitting in her ancient kimono, her face protected by her white parasol and the shadows of her ancestor's tomb. I took another photograph. This was the Japan that eluded Ephelet, my spiritual nemesis. I know that now. For me, this was the world that has beckoned me perhaps all my life since I was a child looking into my father's scrapbook. It is a world that I am continually yearning to give form to with my images. End of chapter. Okay, let's talk. <laughs> Who wants to ask a question? Laura? Um, I was just wondering about that um, 
portal in your heart, the time deadline, has it closed or is it still ongoing? Is it still open? It closed. That work is, was done. Okay. Um, that, that easy access to, to different, different eras of, of, of Japanese history is, is gone now, but, but I'm on to, uh, to a new dimension of discovery um, with, with new portals that are opening. <laughs> Um, but, but, you know, I have to say that, you know, that when that portal opened, it involved, a, you know, a spiritual crisis. It was painful. Uh, and it, and it, and it transformed my life. You know, it ripped me out of an old life and, um, and, and, you know, and often, you know, in order to, to get, you know, to those those deep layers of inspiration, you know, it it it, it inquires, you know, pain. Um, so, um, you know, part of me is kind of glad that 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 time is 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 done with. Um, but you know, sometimes I'm I you know I'm concerned whether I'll be able to take images like those that I did during that time again. Um, so, you know, I have to work extra hard, you know, to be able to, you know, open myself again. It, it sounds like you were entrusted with a mission and then the mission was accomplished. But in the process, it was a hero's journey with, a, with homework and a t time limit, like an expiration date. Yeah. It's so fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing and for writing about this. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, Jan, did you have a question? Yeah, it was a question and a comment. I was, you know, when I heard the title of your book, the Kyoto Dream Time, or, and, you know, immediately thought of the uh, Aboriginal Australian connections of dreaming and dream time. Um, and one of the reasons I was attracted to Japan was because of the similarities I could see with Indigenous uh, belief systems in Australia and the like. I, I just wondered if you uh, uh, had an opportunity to read much about what's been written by Indigenous people in Australia about their belief systems and the like. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, I, I studied anthropology in college and, uh, and in my 20s, I, I worked as a photojournalist and, and you know, I spent time with the Aborigines in Australia. Um, you know, I spent time with indigenous people in, in the Amazon, um, you know, with native people in America, um, in the outback of, um, of Namibia. And, um, and I, and, and I, I've come to understand that, you know, we can easily consider them as primitive people. But, but now what I understand is that, no, that they have evolved in a completely different direction than what we have. And that they have evolved into ways that they are able to open so many psychic spaces, you know, within their, within their nervous systems, within, within the environment in which they live. And that that is really where I feel that true abundance lies. And, um, and this is what actually, you know, attracted me to Japan as well, is, you know, this great spiritual sensitivity that mm -hmm. was in Japan, that still is in Japan under mm -hmm. the surface yeah. of this noisy modern life. And so what I'm trying to do with this book is to articulate, you know, that, that, that undercurrent that spiritual dimension that, that does still exist here if we open ourselves to it. Mm. And, and I, I feel that's incredibly important because I've, you know, I've um, been on se several pilgrimages with uh, Shigendo people and things, and there, there is a lot of, uh, as sort of 
yeah, spirituality, obviously, and it's there, but I'm not sure that people are aware of it. And I've read quite a lot about hay and culture and that, but the way you're speaking about it and bringing it to life, I think will open it to a lot more people um, and, and congratulations for that. So I'm looking forward to your book when it comes out. Thank you. Thank you, Jan. Thank you, Jan. And one thing I, I want to mention is that, I mean, you know, with, with a lot of the religious groups here in Japan, including Shugendo, you know, they're, they're, they're working with, with cultural filters, Buddhist filters, Shinto filters, different filters. And I'm trying to get beneath those filters to, to a, a more ancient, you know, dream time, you know, whether, you know, we can call it, you know, Jomon or something, something even more, more, uh, what I want to say is universal. That, you know, I, I believe this, you know, this, this indigenous message is something that the world really needs right now mm. to, to reconnect us with, with the earth. Because really, you know, that, that's where the abundance is. That's where yeah. our, 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 our deep peace and happiness is. Mm. And it connects everyone when you go to that yeah. deep level. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Thank you. Thank you. John? Ah, and mute. Hi, thanks, Everett. Uh, a lot of what you said sounds close to shamanism and uh, it was in, with a similar spirit that uh, I wanted to get to the roots of uh, Japanese spirituality that I went to Siberian Lake Baikal where there's a shaman's rock and uh, I kind of had the feeling that that was uh, uh, an important point of reference if not origin for the southward migration through Korea. Because one thing that is very often overlooked, if you read books on Shinto, you'll find almost nothing about rocks and rock worship and spirits in rocks. And I, I couldn't understand, I still don't understand why it's almost overlooked by the Shinto hierarchy as something primitive and to be dismissed. But it seems to me the very essence of yes. ancient Shinto, it's very closely linked with Korean shamanism, where they sit in front of rocks and worship the ancestors. So um, it's really just a comment that uh, looking for that universalism does seem to me to lead to shamanism, which was worldwide at one time and obviously closely connected with the earth. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, John. We're, we're very kindred in that, in that regard. Um, and actually, uh, let me just mention that uh, the next book that I'm planning to write uh, will touch upon this issue of how uh, Shintoism changed during the Meiji era period. And, uh, and actually, the, the, uh, this is the reason I'm in Fukuoka now, is that the... Um, uh, we, we are taught that Japanese civilization started in Nara, then went to Kyoto. Uh, you know, this was all written by the Fujiwara family, but there's a lot of evidence that actually that the, the first civilization, you know, of, of Japan started in Kyushu. Um, so more about that later on, a, on, a, on, a, on another occasion. If I could just follow up quickly, what's um, your connection with Gaussian books? Are you, are you actually writing for the being published by them? Um, Gaussian books is, uh, is Leanne's uh, um, uh, publishing house. And uh, so she, she is you know, sponsoring these, uh, these talks. And and we are we are old friends. We're, we're soulmates, and so uh, and 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 Leanne was actually a spiritual guide through the process of writing this book, and um, and and this is the connection. Uh, she was an excellent coach to um, to 
to help me to to open my heart um you know to to and to make this book relevant because actually the, i i wrote a, i wrote a, a completely different book before i i talked with leanne and uh and it was a book more about the yamabushi and um and it was a little bit too much out there and i knew that and that's why i i contacted her and so uh with her womanly wisdom, she helped me to really, to ground this book in well, the heart. Thank you, Everett. I, I want to say what, what I noticed in the knowing Everett for all these years, we went on magazine assignment from the eighties. We were working for ANA Wingspan together. We went to uh, Ogasawara to do a, a dolphin story and Gifu to do a, Washi story, or was it Fukui, one of those. And so I, I've seen Everett at work as a photographer. And I said to him, I want to see the camera in every chapter, even if you're thinking about it, even if it doesn't come out. There's something that's so, that's so much a, a part, it's like another limb of Everett, this camera and identifying um, life through his worldview, through the lens. So that was what I was really excited to bring out in this story. And, um, and it was a kind of a cheat because I already knew Everett already. So <laughs> it wasn't- So very... she could call me. She could call my bluff every time. <laughs> uh, I would remember. Because again, because again, again, with my writing, you know, I, I want to erase myself out of the writing. You know, I, 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 you know, I, I and, uh, you know, for better and worse. And so Leanne really helped me to, to step into the book. Yeah. Edward, you have a question? Well, yeah, congrats. Fantastic. Uh, what you have is quite fantastic. Uh, a little disclaimer, I also know Everett for quite a long time. We've worked together and played together and studied and grew up together uh, in Japan. In My oldest way. friend in Japan. Yeah, we so we did. And, uh, but uh, most of the story that you told tonight, I didn't have sort of a clue about. I mean, I had little glimpses. And so the story of your transformation beginning with the tsunamis 311 or, and I just found it very, uh, very interesting to hear because I thought I knew you well, but now I feel like I know you better. But, and that I can see that we have so many, we're so different, but we have so many commonalities. But I just want to throw out this one thing that I remember uh, whenever it was, many of you may or may not know that he was a very successful uh, photojournalist running a big famous agency in in Tokyo, which was kind of our dream, you know, we we're always comparing notes. And he said to me one day, well, this is as, this is, you know, uh, as being a photographer, this is sort of as good as it gets, at least in in the photography photojournalistic world, he was the head of this big agency. And then to hear him, he does this sort of uh, not flip, but uh, dream, transporting dream. And now you've obviously found uh, uh, that Kyoto, being an artist and Kyoto and writing about your dream times, well, to quote yourself, I don't see how it could get any better than that, but you said that now that the portholes have closed and so I'm really now waiting for the, the next step. And I'm, I'm waiting to read the book. So thank you. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, oh. the portholes haven't closed. That particular porthole had closed. And now actually a, a new porthole is opening up. A very big porthole is opening up in Fukuoka. Uh, I've, I've been asked to help to revive the spiritual tradition of uh, Mount Hiko, which was actually the largest uh, Yamabushi uh, training site in Japan until the early Meiji period. And that was all destroyed. Thank you, Ed, Edward, for what you said, because, you know, so many of us, we don't do what we want to do. We tend to do what we're good at. 
And I was good at being a photojournalist, but it really wasn't what I really wanted to be doing. And, and I, I reached a point, you know, you know I, I, I climbed that ladder, you know, I, I, uh, you know, I, I, I found a, a degree of success with it, but I was taking photographs that other people could take. And, and I, I had a spiritual crisis that I realized I, I, I couldn't do this anymore. You know, I had to let go of a, of a very good income uh, and go into the wild. Um, and so this is, this is actually what this book is about, is about a journey into the dark night of the soul, of making a transition from a successful life into the city, into letting go of everything. And, you know, I, I even, you know, I let go of, you know, a, a farm that I had, um, you know, I, I needed, you know, in order to really to change myself, I needed to let go of, of this, almost everything that I could and start over from zero. So, you know, at the age of almost 60, I felt like I was in my 20s again, you know, starting out on, on life. And when I was working at as, as a photojournalist, I couldn't express the, 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 or even talk about, you know, the, the spiritual aspects of my life. And um, so just to repeat myself, you know, this, this book is about the, this process of letting go of my old self and finding my higher self, letting go of my, my smaller self and finding my higher self. Robert, I, I can't help but just jump in here and say that one of, one of the things that people who are writing memoirs think is that it's a recollection, a recollection of the past and that stops a lot of people from writing their memoirs because they don't want to go there or they think it's a kind of confessional. But the way I experienced it through my book and through Everett's is actually memoir form is about almost like a vision board, creating the life that we want or the person that we want to be to actually write our stories with knowing where we're heading or visualizing that that's the person I want to become. This is the location I want to do it in. These are the challenges I want to take on because I've proven to myself that I've already been able to do these other past things. So I shouldn't be afraid. So this is, I think what happens in the, in the memoir form is that we gain courage and we see through our own illusions, get out of our own way, get rid of the blocks. And that's what makes it exciting for the readers to go along on the journey with the writer, not to make a, a catalog everything that happened in the past for history's sake, but to create a better future. I just wanna add that I think what makes a successful memoir is one that, that draws out all of the different personalities we have within ourselves, all the different people that we have within ourselves. And in the end, we discover our higher self because we always have, you know, we have this higher self that, that you know, keeps, you know, drawing us, you know, forward and further along. And, um, and memoir writing is, is a way to, allow that voice to come front forward. Beautiful. Well, anybody want to help us close with some closing comments? Just raise your hand. If you want to say, if you haven't said anything yet, please, we want to hear from you, Shoya. Thank you. My Everett, I've only got to know over the last couple of months, but you know, he's definitely inspired me a lot. Um, I'm really happy to, to join this evening. And just, you know, listening to what he was just saying over the last you know, 10, 15 minutes brings to mind 
one of my favorite quotes by Henry David Thoreau when he said, it is only when we forget our learning that we begin to know. So, you know, in some ways, you know, I think, you know, a lot of the time, you know, we're bombarded with so much, you know, kind of knowledge and you must study this, you must learn this, you must do that. And often it's not really what we want to be doing. It's what we're told to kind of study or be. And I think, you know, it's kind of, you know, when we can forget that, you know, that's when we really, I think, start to kind of, you know, know and really kind of connect with what is our true path. I just want to mention that uh, Shoya is actually one of, one of the most brilliant and original uh, of the international community in Japan. And, uh, and I look forward to hearing from your memoir two or three years from now, because you have one of the most amazing stories that I've heard. Thank you. You have to teach me how to write first. <laughs> well, speak to Leanne. That's, <laughs> she can set you straight. <laughs> Happy to. Thank you. Well, Thank you, everyone. Um, really, it's it's so great to have this community here. Until now, we've been reading finished books, and this is forever to read from his loose manuscript pages is brave. Thank you for doing that. A work in progress um, means that we're still reacting in our writing to how the audience. Um, accepts our words. So I think he's taking all of this in on a very deep level and, and he's seeing where people laugh and where people are moved. And that's gonna fortify him for the next stage of the, of the writing journey. It's just so great to hear your story in, in your own words. Thank you for that. Mm. It's, it's been fantastic. Thank you, Leanne, for this opportunity. And, uh, and thank you all for taking your precious time to, to join with us this evening. I believe that everyone has a, a memoir within waiting to be born. And we can look back on our lives with gratitude and pride for growing beyond the limitations that society and our family background may have put before us to discover the blessings of a life outside the comfort zone, to share stories that can inspire the friends and family who may not have understood us till now, and the many who have walked in our ways and are much in need of a role model. To call yourself a memoir writer begins the day you commit to telling your story. That's why I started GoshenBooks.com, to provide you with the tools and the incentive to complete your memoir. Get private coaching directly from me. One session can give you the focus you need, and regular weekly sessions will keep you on track to keep you motivated, accountable, and confident that your story matters, your life matters. You've got what it takes. Now go for it. Finish your book. Read the testimonials, the reviews, and sign up at GoshenBooks.com.